This is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Welcome. I am Jim Grant. With me, as ever, is uh, Evan Lorenz, the great Deputy Editor of Grants. And we have with us today, uh, not just the two of us, by no means, we have Omid Malik, who is the founder and CEO of uh, Farvahar Partners. He's into uh, merchant banking and technology and uh, an alumnus of the Hedge Fund Advisory Division of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and, and a lawyer and a formidable McTavish is Omid Malik, and we'll be with him in just one moment. But Evan, if you are not listening to the State of the Union last night, message last night, I want to uh, prize you of one passage. It just set me off. I mean, I, I sometimes I just have to be restrained in front of the television set. And here is where the President of the United States was talking about his plan uh, to, uh, I think, lift the rate of inflation. He was going to do this and this and this, including something called infrastructure. And he said, so what are we waiting for? Let's get this done. And while you're at it, he says, addressing, I guess, Congress, confirm my nominees to the Federal Reserve, which plays a critical role in fighting inflation, close quote. Now, I think that the copy editing is scandalous here. Obviously, the passage was meant to say, which plays a critical role in fomenting inflation. And instead, some lame, <laughs> some nitwit let slip in the word fighting inflation. I mean, this if we, if we can't get good copy editing for the president of the United States, what is this country coming to? Maybe he meant the Fed was like a fifth column in the U.S. fighting for inflation. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But maybe that was it. But I mean, I got <laughs> Jerome, Jerome Powell, inflation fighter. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps you have heard this before from Grant's interest rate observer. I, I want to point out that in a time of rip roaring, seven and a half percent CPI growth, uh, we have today a zero uh, percent federal funds rate. And Evan, I think we are still in the final runoff stages of QE, are we not? $30 billion a month until mid-March, uh, and then they need to decide whether they want to keep doing it. Yeah. These are the inflation fighters, ladies and gentlemen. Inside those hoses is streaming, yeah, you guessed it, gasoline. So. <laughs> I think you're also forgetting that they need to ratify those appointees so the Fed can also get on with its other mandate in climate change as well. So you're forgetting that. <laughs> yeah. I suggest that they wait to take care of the weather until we get the CPI at least down to six. That's my suggestion right. for them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's just so trite these days. I mean, they've got a lot of work to do fighting the, yeah. the climate change and uh, all other inequality in the world that the Fed is here to save us from. But, yeah. uh, but by the way, they've set up the circumstances for why we have such a robust private market. They're certainly part of it. So I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. About yes. All. This brings us to the business portion of, of this enterprise as opposed to the sermon, which is now complete. Uh, yeah. But Omid is uh, all about uh, venture capital that, um, you know, that we, we talked about the inflation on uh, the corner of Broad and Wall, so to speak. But there is a uh, there's also a fine inflation in like uh, Silicon Valley. There's a, an excellent inflation uh, at uh, the local supermarket too. But we tell us, I mean, is you know, one reads about uh, about the astounding growth in uh, private equity, all the money that's uh, that's uh, that's yeah. been tossed into it. Uh, I mean, is it is it truly a uh, is it a bubble? You know, I don't necessarily know that it is because we've had so many structural and macroeconomic developments over the last 20 years. So when I sit with skeptics, of which I think I fall at least partly into, but I'm also a practitioner in the space, so I have to also be a promoter. It's an odd kind of uh, duality that I have because one, I put my academic hat on, the other, I'm working in it every day. So I kind of have to take a step back. And so I've tried to do that and I've tried to also publish some pieces on it, but I think it's a very complicated issue. We can all hear say, oh, wow, 
prices are too high, look at how they're trading historically, both in the public market. We probably have less data to do so on the private market. But we we often compare today to you know the late 90s. And, and I think that's difficult to do given how much the world has changed in that period of time. Mm. And that change of the world uh, is why we have some of these inflated prices uh, and the unicorns that they've been known uh, recently as. And, and I'll just spend a, a minute just providing some historical context so we can then have a more fulsome conversation. Because without the context, I think people look at this in a vacuum, and, and that's a mistake. And so what happened after that notorious bust in the late 90s, early 2000s, and also the related fraud that occurred with Enron and WorldCom was that we started to make it a little bit more onerous in, with Sarbanes-Oxley for companies to go public. Um, and we also, around the same time, started to have a much more global economy. And we started having the maturation of the Gulf states, the uh, Asia, and other sovereign funds that decided they were going to start investing in businesses in the United States, diversify, in the case of the Arab nations, away from oil into, as we've seen with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. And of course, other oligarchs and things that have now become full circle with Russia, uh, but even Chinese newly minted billionaires and millionaires looking to diversify their capital outside of their, their own countries. And in the case of China, uh, a country that we enrich through our own policies, then coming back and investing in real estate and other products here. So I point out that there started to become other sources of capital that were not present in the 90s right. uh, throughout the 2000s. And then you add in what you guys are, are really interested in and talked a lot about, which is the Fed's role, which starts becoming, uh, I think, a very politicized body, even more so than it had already been in the past with really, I, I think, in earnest under the Bush administration. Uh, and then obviously those policies were continued under Obama. And so one of the things obviously the Fed does is start keeping interest rates extremely low as a, a way to, uh, to get us out of that recession, again, during that period that we're talking about. And then Obama signs in a law that people don't really talk much about, which is the Jobs Act in 2012. What that did was it actually allowed private companies to quadruple the amount of private investors that they had, so from 500 to 2,000. So now let's look at the world that we're in starting around that time. You have a financial crisis, and there aren't a lot of jobs uh, you know, on Wall Street. So a lot of the smart, motivated, ambitious people start looking at ways to disrupt our economy with some of the new technology that we have. So on the supply side, we start seeing these companies start sprouting up like Uber and Lyft and WeWork and all these things during that period of time. At the same time, you have a very low interest rate environment. So people are searching for yield, not just in public markets now, but also in private. So that's kind of the monetary uh, influence there. And then you have all the quantitative easing that you're talking about as well that, that started in earnest. You're not seeing uh, any inflation during this period. And you're starting to see these other sources of capital start piling in as well. And so what we have here, again, this is the international money I'm describing, is a perfect storm for these kinds of inflated valuations that started occurring and started having multi-billion dollar uh, businesses solely in the private market. Before coronavirus, we were off 50% from 1996 high of publicly traded companies. So we enter into the coronavirus in 2020 with there being a dirt, basically, of public companies on a relative basis. I'll stop there if there's any thoughts on that part, and then we can get into where we are now based on what's gone on over the last couple of years. But I wanted to provide that viewpoint. Yeah, good background. That was very helpful. I, I don't have any questions on the kind of dearth of public companies, but I'd love to kind of talk about where we are now and where we're going forward. Last year seemed like a halcyon year for venture capital. And just going to PitchBook, the average value of late stage VC companies increased to $753 million in 2021 from $417 million in 2020. That's a huge increase. And the, the question before the House is, was that kind of like a local top of the market or have the four that you laid out combined to create kind of like this blow off top and what happens going forward? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so related. So where do we see some of the contributing factors that I enumerated going from here? Because in order to make the prediction, you have to look at all of those things. It's not enough for someone, I guess, to say, oh, I'm going to come to my senses all of a sudden and think that I'm paying too much for this stuff. The reality was is that there was always an option for someone to pass it on to another entity to continue these valuations. So the Series A investor is happy when there's a mark up, the mark keeps happening. And then in 2020, when you had this dislocation in the marketplace known as coronavirus, and everything I just described gets put on steroids with over $6 trillion both from the Fed as well as fiscal stimulus pumped into the economy, it's not a surprise that you have the statistics that you just cited, right? So it makes complete sense if you look at what we did. So people are awash with cash and you have an acceleration of everything I just described during that period. Now, um, I, I think that's and then you add in the SPAC product as well. So the SPAC product, which has been around for a long time, gets resurrected during COVID as well, because now you're providing a very elegant way for the glut of companies that are all really mostly predicated on future earnings to go to the public market and, and acquire some of that liquidity that had been pushed into the system. And so it's a very elegant solution for these unicorns because they're saying, well, we're going to be profitable in a few years. And what's the hallmark of a SPAC versus a conventional IPO? It's the ability for those companies to talk about what's going to happen in three to five years. As you guys know, that's not allowed in a regular IPO. And so that's another structural benefit that they provided, as well as a liquidity on a negotiated basis with the SPAC to, to define an enterprise value. Yeah. As the calendar turns, we are getting a better look at the, um, at the accuracy of these three and five year projections coming yeah. back. Has anyone uh, totted them all up and said... Um, you know, here's the uh, the hit rate, and here's the uh, on this on, on revenue growth on average, or here is the the record on accuracy for profitability in X number of years. What what does the scorecard look like? Generally speaking, I mean, I, I think it's it's hard to to do an appropriate postmortem, but the initial results are not awesome. And I think you've seen as we started to begin to get more volatility in the public market. And for people who, I guess, only started investing in 2009, they were surprised to see that the market doesn't always go up. And so certain companies that fall into this category, this, this kind of loosely uh, labeled tech businesses that often value themselves the way that you're describing, were punished. And in the same way, particularly with respect to SPACs, not all SPACs are created equal, obviously, so I want to also provide that caveat. But the ones that were pre-revenue and projected, making these wild projections for five years, by and large, have not succeeded. Um, now, I do think this will create a very interesting opportunity. So as we're in the business of making predictions, I actually think you're going to have a fairly robust M&A market as a result of some of these underperforming SPACs. So if you're seeing SPACs that have already uh, completed their closings or de-SPACs and are now actively trading uh, in public markets, sometimes often as low as 2 or $3 a share, um, you're going to have two things happen. One is some Darwinism. So bigger, better businesses will come and acquire these companies on the cheap. So I think that'll be the next kind of cycle we see. Uh, and then you might have the really odd situation that there is some precedent for where a newly public company gets taken private by a private equity shop, and we just go through the whole thing all over again. And if you want to look uh, no further than a company called Casper Mattress, which was supposedly going to disrupt the mattress industry. Wake up the mattress industry. It was, it was already. <laughs> Wait, yeah, excuse me. Yeah. Wake up the mattress industry, and now is already less than 15 months later on 
uh, public markets is now uh, a private company again. I, I see that uh, one of the things that uh, you do is make markets in early stage uh, yes. uh, you know, tech company shares. And I'm wondering what the salvage opportunities might be if uh, against all expectations, we have a real bear market as opposed to the 15 minute variety. It seems to me that uh, a portfolio of these lottery tickets purchased yeah. at, uh, at give up prices might be a very, very interesting proposition in the years ahead. It's absolutely right. So in the same way I described the uh, dynamics of these larger, more powerful companies potentially acquiring some of these poor trading businesses uh, on public markets, you're going to see exactly the same kind of exploitation occur in private markets on some of these uh, secondary transactions. So it's absolutely correct. We do a variety of things. One is assisting companies with these primary raises we've already described, but we do make markets in secondary trades as well in the private market, which is much more opaque. Um, those typically involve the following, either the uh, executive at the company looking to sell uh, their shares and get some personal liquidity or in very early stage investor. Uh, so two things are going to happen here. On a name-by-name -name basis, as the option to go public regular way IPO becomes more attenuated because of the volatility and correction we're describing, coupled with SPACs not really looking as viable of an alternative anymore, uh, these duration periods are going to elongate. And so as a result, these uh, founders or early stage investors are going to be forced to find some liquidity once it passes kind of the horizon for their funds. And so opportunistic buyers of secondaries are going to be able to get real discount uh, yeah. on these off of what their, their high watermarks were. Can you give us a, an example yeah. or two? It sounds, it yeah. sounds like the old pink sheets, you know, where, um, yeah. when uh, yeah. you, you find these uh, these oddments uh, left for, as it were, left for dead. And uh, wouldn't you know it, yeah. that uh, not all of them had stopped breathing and uh, a lot of money can be made. So give us, please, a couple of examples. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I just give you uh, on a relative basis, the exuberance versus the reality. I mean, typically when you're talking about uh, an executive selling their shares, you know, in a secondary transaction, they for common stock as opposed to preferred, which is usually what they have, you should have anywhere for a 30% discount on that trade, given kind of uh, how you're lower on the cap stack and the lack of, of preference. By the end of last year, we were seeing common stock in the secondary market trade at par of a preferred security of the most recent round, which is absurd. But that was, again, going to the exuberant side. Giving an example here um, of what could happen is, is exactly the opposite, is that this is gonna be a correction where now these owners of these shares are gonna to wanna to facilitate these secondary transactions, are going to have to have much more reasonable valuations, which again, mirrors exactly what's happening in the venture community writ large, where Venture investors now are looking at companies a lot more skeptically. Uh, when you, we were preparing for this conversation, you guys cited some of what Tiger Global is doing, where they're saying, look, you know, we're going to recut some of these deals. We're not going to overpay. And so this just actually has, I think, a, a very effective way of correcting the behavior that perhaps many of us thought got out of control in that you know, the market will speak and say, look, we're not going to allow you to go to these Silicon Valley-based venture investors raise money to buy growth and try to one day be rewarded for it in the public market so we can all cash out. No, not anymore. We're going to want to really understand unit economics and see that there's profitability with growth. And in fact, we are seeing that some of our clients have already begun, uh, and this is on the company side, to manage their cash uh, in that manner. 
And we see that as a response to the way investors are investing. So I can't tell you that this is necessarily a harbinger for a total shift, but it certainly is different than some of the go-go period uh, that you guys were, were citing on the pitch book data from last year. But it's, it's early days. Profitability is a thing now. <laughs> I know. Isn't that, it, it's so trite. Yeah, so trite that uh, profitability matters. But yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is very different from, uh, I think you had uh, Elliot Brown on, who I've also discussed his book uh, about WeWork. Um, you know, probably the peak of the absurdity was their concept of community-adjusted EBITDA. In a in a in a in a public filing, and you know, obviously that got stopped, but that was probably the peak of, of the silliness. For listeners who aren't familiar with it, um, WeWork's community adjusted EBITDA was adjusted, adjusted, adjusted EBITDA. It actually took three tables to get down to the community adjusted EBITDA. So it wasn't just adjusted EBITDA; it was adjusted at least three times. Right, uh, and, and they argued for... with the SEC about this that this should have been appropriate to to put in their their S one for the IPO. I mean. Obviously, cooler heads prevailed, but and they were kind of laughed at by the investor community. But you know, the the overall dynamic, they were obviously uh, coddled and facilitated by some of the largest institutional investors in the world, including but not limited to T. Rowe Price and Fidelity, that had given them hundreds of millions of dollars in the private market. Because during that period, it wasn't enough to get the hot IPO. The, the hot IPO was actually the second or third last private funding round. And so that kind of fear of missing out was leading to these inflated valuations. Uh, Omid, um, part of what happened in the last decade was it was very easy for startups to actually hyperscale because advertising on Facebook and other social media was a highly effective way to acquire new customers. Um, interest rates were very low, which kind of valued higher, uh, further off cash flows very highly. And the cost of energy was very low, which for a company that either owns a server farm or rents space in one is actually a very important consideration. Last year, we saw that Apple changed how its phone operating system allows um, advertisers like Facebook to track consumers, which according to Facebook is denting how effective its advertising is. Uh, this year, we also heard that Google is going to actually change how it tracks uh, consumers on its um, Android platform. As these three things have changed, basically, um, you know, interest rates, how easy it is to capture customers, and also the cost of energy, what does this do to kind of like the past crop of startups? And are there new startups forming now that kind of take advantage of these changes? Yeah, so um, that is really spot on. And I think it's an important thing to bring up. And we're still dealing with exactly what you're talking about. That Apple change in, in um, their protocol there has had a real effect on the advertising side. I mean, tremendous. For example, uh, look at a company. I'm not sure if any of you guys have a Bloomberg handy, but look up a company called Wish. Um, it's kind of uh, self-explanatory, right? No, for <laughs> sure. But it, it apparently, like you know, they, they do something where they sell chops uh, on like a, a, another version of eBay or something, right? And they are probably down last year when we first saw the effect of this. This is a publicly traded business. I haven't looked at it recently, but this is when we were dealing with the topic on the change in advertising costs. They were down 80 percent. Um, as a result of advertising cost increases. It's simply the business model couldn't survive given that. And so it, you know, it allows and encourages the users to opt out of data sharing. And so that makes the advertising on Facebook much more expensive. Um, and because those businesses' models relied exclusively on targeted ads. Um, and so then they tried to move the budget to Android, which is a Google product, but then the supply and demand kicked in and those costs went up. So this is happening in real time. I do believe the journal wrote a long article about it. Uh, it's something that 
these kinds of customer-facing businesses, these B2C businesses, uh, are going to have a real issue grappling with. And maybe it raises larger questions around the reliance on digital media advertising and how that is really dominated by these incumbents of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. And you might have this peculiar shift where now it becomes cheaper to advertise on TV uh, or a newspaper. Uh, not that that's where you maybe want to target your customer, but certainly we have seen the appetite for these B2C type tech businesses wane because of this issue. Uh, so that's a great point to bring up. The energy obviously is another one. And I think that just ties into supply chains, again, writ large, uh, as this could also have a major impact uh, if you start having inflationary pressure that none of these companies, again, have ever had to deal with. When you think about where we've had inflation over the last 20 years, predicated uh, mostly on, on globalization, is it was in healthcare and education costs going up, but not consumer goods at all. We've been able to keep that fairly constant over a two-decade period. And I think these types of things, whether it's the inflation of those types of goods, the supply chain, as well as what you're talking about now, uh, these advertising costs are things that both entrepreneurs and companies have taken for granted, and this will be a real shock. And then finally, if you add in potentially rising rates at the hand of the Fed, then you might also have less capital being put in. This could lead to uh, a very significant correction. So I think all of those are, are material points. The best and brightest are not going to Wall Street. They're they're still going to Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. Given that you have so much just raw intellectual horsepower going into this, have you seen any clever solutions to get over, I guess, the energy costs, the advertising problems, or anything else uh, being developed at the moment? Well, I think on the energy side, it's probably too soon. Uh, that's not to say that they won't, but um, I think that's certainly something that uh, that we're going to stay tuned on. On the advertising costs, I haven't seen anything, you know, particularly novel yet. But again, these are fresh off, hot off the press issues. I think we should talk again in three months and I'll be able to probably have more data for you on that. Uh, but right now I view them as significant risks that some cases, as I pointed out already, see massive, massive impacts uh, on the downside to particular companies. What I can tell you, though, just from an investor standpoint, is they don't want to really see a lot of those B2C companies that are heavily reliant on the advertising side. And so there isn't an appetite for investing in them because of that. So that is certainly uh, something we see in real time, which is a, a desire to go to companies that don't have that issue. So you mean, is, is uh, someone who, who looks at a bunch of deals uh, and accepts some of those propositions, yeah. what is your acceptance rate and how has that rate changed over the course of the past three or five years? It's actually interesting. So when I first had the idea to start this company in 2018, I came from the hedge fund business. I ran uh, Prime Brokerage, which is a financing business and capital introductions globally for Bank of America. That was more on the asset manager side. We were providing financing uh, for hedge funds as well as going and raising them capital. I started to see because of way that the market was trading that it was very difficult to differentiate yourself as a hedge fund. I mean, effectively, these long short guys were just long and it became frustrating to go and speak to endowments and pensions about why this was you know, really important to pay two and 20 for that. So what I did see at the same time was exactly what I started describing, which was there was this exploding market and smart capital wanted to get into that. That's where they saw the real upside of these kind of high growth businesses. So when I first entered the space in 2018, uh, people thought I was silly because it was so easy to raise capital uh, for these companies. They said, why would they want someone who might give them a little bit of money and then help them? It was almost looked at as a negative if there was an intermediary advising them at that time. That's how easy it had been to raise capital. I will say 
the WeWork SoftBank debacle cannot really be overstated. That was a correction of sorts. I understand that we're looking at this recent coronavirus period, obviously, as a pretty exuberant one as well. It certainly was. But even prior to that, we did have a bit of correction when SoftBank sat on its hands for about a year and a half and started stopped allocating. They were probably the most prolific investor in private businesses. It was at that point in around 2019 that the demand for our services uh, really started to explode. And then we also got into the SPAC business as an advisor, as an investor, and then having our own vehicles because it just seemed smart for us to be able to kind of be everything to everyone in the marketplace. I, I'd say the following. It was... Uh, a lower bar, obviously, a year and a half ago, but we were inundated with folks that wanted our assistance. I point out another development that I kind of glossed over is that the same reason I got out of uh, working exclusively with hedge funds, hedge funds also did the same thing. Hedge funds are typically defined as a fund that goes long and short and invests in public markets. The most prominent ones, though, started investing in the private market and are now all designated as what are called crossover funds. So you'll have a hedge fund with 10 billion under assets, and several billion of it is investing in these kinds of products. That coupled with some of those international investors I were talking about is another reason for the additional capital uh, that was going into the private market. So hedge funds are really big players in this space as well. Uh, and I shouldn't have glossed over that because it's also a change in behavior and also leads to blurred lines on what a private market investor is versus a public market. Yeah, what happens to these hedge funds when the when their limited partners want the money back and they sell their public securities and they're down to the last, say it's a $10 billion fund, and they're down to their yeah. last uh, few uh, couple of billion dollars worth of public securities and they got beneath them $3 billion of perfectly illiquid yes. uh, privates. So what then? So what then goes to the conversation we were having earlier, which is that is another boon for my business, which is to be that liquidity (laughs) provider for said hedge fund. So in a way, I'm there in good times, kind of answering your question another way, I can be there in bad times well. So there are going to be opportunistic vulture type funds that are going to sprout up to try to take advantage of that hedge fund that did that. Now, in one instance, there is the single name security. But more interestingly, what we are also seeing are asset managers with billions of dollars to go and buy out secondary LP positions from these funds, either in private equity or venture. So what that means is exactly the set of facts that you described, the limited uh, partner that has invested and thought that they were going to be out in five years. Now, this hedge fund that manages those assets doesn't have to exit the position. They can sell the entire portfolio to a secondary buyer. That provides liquidity to the underlying investor. uh, And now they've effectively rolled the position to someone else who took advantage of it. But because prices were inflated so high, that person that's getting the liquidity is probably satisfied because it's still over when they came in. So you know what kind of discounts these are transacting at? Yeah, probably anywhere from 30 to 50% off. Wow. And, And it'll probably go lower. Because the folks that have liquidity are going to be king, just like the folks that had liquidity and could buy real estate after 2008. Let me let, let me let me ask this. So I, let's say I am a a private investor, an individual with you know I'm a, a qualified investor, right? So I can I can actually call you up on the phone, and I say I would like to give you a, a half million dollars, or a million or two million, whatever the appropriate sum might be, and I want to buy a portfolio of these guys busted deals now. Uh, if it were a public security, one could read a prospectus or look up the annual report. But uh, uh, it would seem as if, in the case of uh, these uh, these remnants, that we are yeah. dealing with more or less an information blackout. How do you invest intelligently and selectively yeah. when you don't know much about the companies you're buying? So I actually think you actually have 
better access as a private market qualified investor, in the, in, again, in the private market than you do in some cases in the public market. Obviously, there's a Sarbanes-Oxley and SEC reporting regime that's provided to you as an investor. But what you don't have after Regulation FD is the ability to go and sit with management at any point and talk to them about their business. That is exactly what's going on in the private market. So if you are a savvy private market investor, and certainly the ones that we deal with are, because we really only deal with institutions. So kind of what I was describing, multi-billion dollar institutions are the folks we talk to on one side and these companies that are making you know 50 to 500 million of revenue. We would always, when we're investing or also facilitating introductions, ensure that that institutional investor is sitting with management, going through their financials and really trying to underwrite the opportunity. There are investors, we don't deal with them, that make decisions without that kind of information. But I think that's a fool's errand to your point. It brings up other issues, though, on the regulatory side, which is it's very interesting to see the difference between the previous SEC under the Trump administration and Jay Clayton and what Gensler is doing now. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, under Gensler, excuse me, under Clayton, he was willing to pose a role, uh, a rule whereby you didn't even need to be an accredited investor to invest in these products. Now, I was totally against that um, because I've seen where that goes. Uh, he wanted any individual to be able to provide, uh, to make an investment in these companies, regardless of their net worth. So that's one thing. Now, in complete contrast, the current, one of the Democratic appointed SEC commissioners has come out pretty vocally and stated they want any company that's marked over a billion dollars to be subject to effectively the full public company re uh, reporting regime in the SEC. I have issues with that, too. So I think both of those positions are extreme. I've critiqued both of them for different reasons. but. Um, Again, I do think the most effective way for this to shake out is precisely what we're seeing, which is to let market forces dictate it. And often, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. When you start acting as kind of a nanny state, like it sounds like they want to, you're going to have unintended consequences. That's very fair. <clears throat> in, in terms of um, market playing out as um, the market forces allocating to the best, uh, you know, available return, SPACs have disappointed. Over a thousand yeah. did come public uh, since 2020, but there's still currently 609 that are searching for deals. I'm going to SPAC Insider right now, which is a good source for data. Yeah. On average, these uh, stocks are trading at a 3% discount to their net asset value, which means if you do nothing and just redeem the shares when they announce a deal, you could actually get a 3% yield, which is higher than, you know, short-term treasuries. I I'd love to know what is your outlook for SPACs going forward? Again, it seems like the technology is not fundamentally bad, although there were bad deals done with SPACs. Yeah. And, and also the fact that there's too many of them. So that's exactly what you're describing. There is no world that these 600 SPACs are going to get a deal done. Um, and to the extent that they do, um, it would probably trade poorer than if they just stayed and did nothing, which is kind of bizarre. Because what we're seeing is actually the market punishing most announced deals right now and having them trade down even below $8, uh, mostly because this is an act of desperation. What ends up happening is a SPAC goes to a company and in desperation says, I'll get you a valuation that really is five times more than it should in order to win the deal because it's such a competitive environment. They then have this unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy where then they, they understand that this uh, valuation is way too aggressive and then they get 98% redemptions and can't even get a pipe done. So now the company and the SPAC either have the option of uh, terminating the deal, which is what we're seeing a lot of, or trying to barely get across the finish line and then you have them trade horribly as we're describing some of them. So what will end up happening is companies will get wise to this. They're going to have the leverage in the discussion. They already do. They will demand committed capital and other types of things. 
Um, and then the majority of those SPACs that cannot do that are going to fall away and you're going to have the elimination of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of sponsor capital that they're going to lose. Uh, that's absolutely going to happen. I'll point out just an interesting wrinkle, though, about SPACs. One of the things that has not been talked about um, is when you kind of start to look at what has done kind of well, and this is just interesting to me because I always have a foot in the political world, is some of the best performing SPACs, because as you guys know, once you announce a SPAC deal, purchasers can go and immediately buy that stock before the deal is even consummated, right? You announce the deal and then there's a several month period of proxies being filed and uh, getting to the closing period. So for example, we've seen kind of right of center SPACs trade really well, politically right of center SPACs. And what I mean by that is look at the Trump SPAC that last time I checked was trading either in the 80s or 90s without even a deal being closed. Look at the Rumble SPAC. Rumble is a kind of free speech alternative to YouTube. Look at the Black Rifle SPAC, which is another successful one. That's just a coffee company that's marketing to patriots. I, I think that's just a kind of an interesting little thing there where you see, in a way, the democratization of people expressing their political viewpoints through the stock market. Uh, that's not typically something that uh, we see, but with SPACs, you're able to see that quite clearly. And I just think it's a, an, an interesting uh, tidbit that, that we've observed uh, over the past couple months, because especially when contrasted to how poor uh, most other SPACs are doing. Which know. is the leading left-wing SPACs? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I, I think BlackRock's already taken care of that in investment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have been talking um, to Omid Malik, who uh, knows about uh, all sorts of stuff. And Omid, it has been a pleasure indeed to have you. And uh, uh, thank you for the knowledge you bring from your career as a, what is it, as a lawyer, as a deal doer, and as a, a nursemaid to hedge funds, which <laughs> I guess I guess you must have met some um, aggressive personalities during your time at um, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, and down in Palm Beach, I, I continue to interact with them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll resume this conversation in the uh, fullness of time, but not too full. It's a pleasure to have spoken to you, Avi. No, uh, it's a real pleasure being on. Yeah. Thanks for all the great work that you guys do, uh, You know, keeping folks honest. And uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to have spent this time with you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with all of you soon. Done. Okay, we'll do that. Likewise. And, and ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Kurt Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 